You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Well, hey, we're going to hop into our message now, and uh, we are going to kind of preach our way the next few weeks through the prayers that our church is praying. And today's prayer, well, Monday's prayer, sorry, uh, Monday's prayer is what we'll start with here, that we may join in community with the marginalized and disenfranchised. That includes single parents, children, poor, homeless, addicted, refugees, minorities, and so on, so that we can provide social, emotional, physical, and spiritual support. That is our Monday prayer. And this church has been that kind of place before and continues to move in that direction. During dinner church, this place was very much reaching uh, this kind of population of Jackson, which we are surrounded by in our particular community. So we want to continue to press into that. So I thought it might be helpful to give you some context as to why that is one of our prayers. And it starts at the beginning of the Bible. At the beginning of the Bible, you have God raising up men and seeing that this is not good enough. There's so many things that he looks at the world and says it's good. He doesn't say it's perfect. He says it's tobe. That's a Hebrew word, which means it's good in purpose. It's good in design. It's, it's good. It has this quality of goodness. But he looks at man. He sees him alone and says, that's actually not good. None of these other animals match with him. Man needs a partner. And so God puts him in a deep sleep and pulls not his rib, he pulls his side, is actually the Hebrew translation. He pulls a side of Adam out and then creates woman. And that's an important difference between rib and side because side implies almost as though God has split man in half. It's not as though woman is lesser than him. It's not as though woman is, is uh, subordinate to him. They're like 50-50, half of him has been split. And God sets in place marriage to bring them back together. Now, I don't want to say that if you're not married, you're incomplete, because the Bible shows a fuller glimpse that that's not the case. Jesus himself was unmarried, as was Paul, and many of your biblical heroes. So marriage is not, the, um, is not mandatory, but the way in which God had ordered things in creation, he saw man is not good alone, and I'm going to assign him a helper. Now, in... English language, a lot of times when we hear the word helper, that feels lesser than. Like, man's going to do the job, and the woman's going to take care of the man while he does the job. That's not what ezer, that Hebrew word for helper, means. Ezer is, is helper in the sense that she has been assigned to the same mission. She is doing the same thing as him. They are going together in ministry to cultivate the whole earth to make it like heaven. In fact, later in the Bible, God is called an Ezer, and God is not subordinate to humanity. So it's not as though like God is lesser than humanity because he helps them. Same with the woman. She is a helper. She is equal. She is pulled from the side. She is 50%. And so these two are supposed to move forward and fill the whole earth, be fruitful and multiply. And as they leave Eden, they will go out into the parts of the world that is not cultivated to look like Eden, 
and cultivate it to look like Eden until the entire earth has been filled with Eden. Does that sound familiar? It's where the Bible ends. So the main plan that God has set in place is exactly where we're heading. He didn't like, well, that didn't work out, forget about it. He's still on the same purpose. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the old earth, make it look like Eden, make it look like heaven. But then humanity chooses sin, and this messes things up quite a bit. Because of our sin, the world gets messed up from the very base of its existence to the point that now things are growing thorns and the earth is harder to cultivate than it used to be. But there's a dynamic between men and women that has gotten messed up too where they no longer seem to view themselves as equals because their sin has now messed with their head too. That's not the way that things actually are, but it's the way that the curse is now working on the male and female relationship. Not the way that it has to be as Jesus came and elevated women to the same level as him, putting some even as apostles like Junia that Paul did ministry with. But that's the sin has made us start to look at people as different Probably part of the reason they had to cover their bodies after. It's like, I just realized I don't look the same as you and, and there's differences between us and that's weird. Whatever the case, there's now this fracture. And that fracture continues onward. You get to their children, Cain and Abel, and there's a new fracture between siblings who go on to one of them murders the other. And then it goes on and there's new fractures between uh, um, humanity and polygamy and all these other things and fractures after fractures come to the point that people instead of all being on the same co-equal level ruling the earth as they were supposed to be are all trying to elevate themselves over one another some are taking their power and authority and using it to mess up other people despite the fact that they have the same power and authority and that power and authority comes from the fact that you are made in the image of God. In the ancient world, that was not true of all human beings. In the ancient world, people told stories about how the kings were made in the image of God. That they were the only ones with power and authority from the gods to carry out the ways of the world. And they just made all the other humans do what they were supposed to do. But that's not the story the Bible tells. The Bible says that no matter whether you're male or female, that no matter whether, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're doing well or you're persecuted, no matter who you are, you are all made in the image of God and therefore are all on the same co-equal plane. So when you take your power and authority and abuse someone else with it, well, they have that same power and authority and you are using yours incorrectly. But we watch as the world tries to continue on and it wants to follow God sometimes and fill the earth and make it look like Eden. But then a lot of other times, sin gets in the way and messes them up from doing that. Because it continues to create dynamics between people where things get messed up and fractured. Now eventually God pulls out the kingdom of Israel and he tells them to be a very interesting kind of community. We're used to the kind of community where we live in the United States of America. There's a president and there's a bunch of other federal things and then there's state policies and politics. And we know all of this as the systems 
within which we live and have to work and operate. But God's kingdom of Israel, he set up a little differently. They were not to have a king. There would be prophets who would speak to them to help them stay on track with what God wanted. But the real king of Israel was God himself. It was his land that he was giving to them. And they were to live in love. They were to stop poverty from happening. They were to take care of the poor among them and go so far as to make sure that there were no poor among them. And so Israel didn't have a king. They were supposed to exist as the imagers of God, all with equal authority, all with equal land, and take care of one another. Now, even though they weren't supposed to have any poor among them, we all know, as Jesus said, you will always have poor among you. And that's because sin has entered the world. It's fractured things. And sometimes it's out of our own decisions that poverty is created, and sometimes it's out of the, the systems of this world that poverty is created, and sometimes it's just out of the things that happen, um, either willy-nilly or programmed in some other way, that create poverty. So God created an equal kind of, of place for all of Israel, where every tribe got a different piece of land, and everybody was assigned a place to live. So they all had the equal opportunity to make their land fruitful, to grow, and to take care of themselves. But we know that uh, uh, equality is not always equal equity. There are going to be some people with their land who are going to have a bad agricultural season. They're going to struggle to grow crops. They're not going to have all the know-how like someone next door to create fertile land. It's going to be others who get sick and can't take care of their land very well. There's going to be others who, who uh, are going to find themselves not having as many children to take care of the land as the other families are having. We all gather, because we've seen it a million times, that there are many different variables between family to family that would create difficult seasons for some and better seasons for others. And so, God has a way to address this. Because this is his community and there's not supposed to be any poor in the land. So he understands that sin's going to get in the way or that the world is not perfect. It is just good. And that things will get messed up along the way. God knows that will happen. But he has a reset switch to make sure that their goal is always to take care of one another. So it's God's land. He's the landlord. He gives it out to the people and every seven years, if any Israelite has any debt, they are supposed to be forgiven. So you can imagine the Israelites were always a little nervous in the sixth year when someone's like, I really need a loan. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you're going to have to pay pretty big amounts to have that done within one year or I'm going to lose a bunch of money. But that was what they were supposed to understand. The importance of taking care of this other person, that's, that's what's more important than anything else. It's not about your money. In fact, all money is, is God's. All your wealth is God's. The reason God blessed Israel was not so that they could just be wealthy and have stuff. He blessed it because they were supposed to use it to bless other people in the name of Jesus. Or in the Old Testament, in the name of Yahweh. The world would produce enough and take care of everyone if it wasn't for our greed. 
I know there's a lot of conversations these days about the world coming to an end environmentally, all these things happening and whatnot. But the biblical portrait is that things will always take care of itself if people aren't greedy. If they're not all about their wealth and all about their money, but understand that God has lent that to them to invest and take care of wisely in others. Jesus even tells parables of those same kind of things. All right, I gave you a bunch of stuff, you a bunch of stuff. What did you do with it? And the ones who did nothing with it, he's like, you wicked and evil servant. <laughs> Jesus, God, they're looking for us to take what we are given and use it not to create a culture of greed, but to bring about the kingdom of heaven where the poor are taken care of. So every seven years, debt is to be forgiven. Those are the sabbatical years. But there's a giant sabbatical year every 70 years. Anybody remember what it's called? Year of Jubilee. This is the grand reset button where it's like no matter what you've gotten, no matter what you've done, all of your stuff defaults back to the landowner, uh, landowner who is God. And then God redistributes. So... If something has gone horribly wrong for you and you had to give your land away, you had to sell it, guess what happens at 70 years? That land is given back to you and whoever took it over, they have to step back and let you have your land back. Which means that within your lifetime, at least once within your lifetime, you should find a moment to get a reset, to get a fresh start. Also, some people are going to fall into debt and they're going to take out a bunch of loans. On that 70th year or two, you are to pay back the loans, or sorry, to, to let the loan be completely forgiven. On the 70th year, you let the loan go away. And by the way, this is interesting in the Hebrew world, there was no interest on their loans. Because the point was not for someone doing well to get rich off of helping someone poor. The point of loans in the Hebrew world was, I see the poor among me, they need my help, and I cannot profit off of their misfortunes. So here's some money to help you out, just pay it back over time. There was no greed in their loan system, or at least there wasn't supposed to be. And some people would have struggled so much during uh, either those 70 years in some way where they lost their land, they lost their family, they had nothing left, and they might have had to give themselves over to another Hebrew family, either as a hired worker or a slave. On the 70th year, you were to be let go from slavery. God reminding the Hebrews, remember when you were slaves? Why are you doing that to each other? So whatever misfortunes came about, the year of Jubilee was like a reset. Let's get it back together. Let's forgive one another. Let's make sure those in poverty have an equal chance to try over again and try to make sure that all the poor are to be among you. Why? Because there are not to be any poor among you. This is a beautiful image. Like, I mean, of all the politics in the world, this one is great. And yet we have no record of Israel ever practicing Jubilee. So as far as we know, it was a good idea that God put in place that they were never going to live out. Because can you imagine? Can you imagine people being softened enough to forgive their loans? 
to release their hired workers, to give people back their land? No, not today. Heck, we just had a conversation about forgiving student loans and people got ticked off. And that right there is a perfect example. There's people who have taken on tons of loans to go to school who have been told when you graduate, you will be able to pay these back easily. And they are incapable of doing that. They're paying hundreds to thousands of dollars of loans every month. They are drowning in poverty because of it. And then we just look at them and say, I can't forgive that. This is the Bible image. Forgiveness is a beautiful thing. That's something to be celebrated that a secular America would come up with such a radical idea. Embrace it or don't embrace it. I get it that we've all struggled from it, but uh, that right there is a beautiful picture of something like Jubilee, something to be excited about. This is the way that Israel was set up, to act as imagers, living on the planet, taking care of one another, treating each other with the same power and authority as co-equals, whether you're male or female, in poverty or not in poverty. But that's not the way that Israel wanted to stay. You guys remember the story later? We get to the time of Samuel, and they say, we want a king like all the other nations. All the other nations, they've got kings telling them what to do. That one guy who's supposed to be the image of God. They want to, instead of acting like the image of God all themselves, they want to practice the things that other nations do and pretend that just the guy in charge really is the image of God and everybody else can do whatever. And Samuel just tells him straight, look, if you're going to do that, you can, you can do that, but God has a stern warning for you. There's going to be lots of injustice and you're going to suffer because of that decision. Let me read it to you because Samuel gives them a, a stern warning. He says, uh, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In other words, your children are going to die because they're going to be sent to war. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots, so forced labor. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, forced labor. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He's going to take all your stuff after you've worked real hard on it. He will, take the, uh, he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to your officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will answer you and the Lord will not answer you in that day. So Samuel essentially comes up. When I was younger, I would read that and be like, all right, you want a king? Okay, here's what the king will do, just so you all know. This is how kings work. And the reason I read it that way is because that's how America works. You know, it's like if we have like a draft, like, well, that's just expectation. But God comes and gives like all those kinds of things. He's like, look, this is not good. If you want a king, you are going to suffer. All your stuff that belongs with you is going to be taken you people who are made in my image are going to be treated as lesser thans and just be at the disposal of the king. Is that really what you want? And all God's people said, yes. 
In the time of Samuel, all God's people said, yes, give us a king. And so they got it. And sometimes we read their story of upward success as a positive thing, but sometimes I wonder if the Bible is trying to show it as a negative. Yeah, they get God's blessing, but Solomon is given God's wisdom. And instead of always using that wisdom for good, Solomon actually uses God's wisdom, it seems, to create a machine. He does things that God would not allow him to do in order to create a wealthy nation that is all about itself and is trying to um, create just something full of wealth. And as people get wealthier and wealthier, guess what happens? Others get poorer and poorer. And so you find, you find parts of Israel falling into extreme poverty, extreme injustice, to the point that God raises up prophets to speak to the king and he says, you guys gotta fix this. Take care of the poor and the marginalized. I've heard their prayers. Take care of the poor of the widows, the orphans, take care of them, or you will have judgment on your hands for that. Does Israel listen? No, they consistently feed the machine, the system that keeps people stuck in poverty and generates wealth. And so these poor people are continually dragged down in life, have to make really bad decisions to try to get by, and find themselves just stuck in poverty with no way out because nobody's listening to God. And God gets to the point where he's like, there is so much blood on your hands, Israel, that we're done. This is, this is over. The nations that I had you drive out for their evils, you're worse than them now. And so God leaves their temple and then Israel is kidnapped by another nation pulled out of Jerusalem and sent into Babylon, where all of Israel is now in poverty. They were slaves. They came out of slavery to become their very own oppressors. And then were sent back into slavery until Jesus came along with a new message. Jesus came along declaring jubilee. It's his mission statement. Jesus quotes Isaiah when he gets up in front of the church after he's fasted for 40 days in the desert. He tells them, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the year of the Lord's favor in the Old Testament is very likely a reference to Jubilee. And Jesus carries out the ways of Jubilee as he continues on. He takes care of the poor. He heals them. He casts out demons. He takes care of those stuck in mental health crises. He takes care of those stuck in poverty crises. He continues to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor everywhere he goes. He forgives people everywhere he goes. That's a huge part of Jubilee. And Jesus spends all of his time with the poor. He reaches all the marginalized. In fact, Jesus becomes an exact example of what the poor and marginalized is like. When God comes down in flesh, you think he would look like a glorious king on a throne, but instead he's born in a feeding trough, becomes a refugee shortly after, lives his life as a homeless man with nowhere to lay his head, and then is murdered on a cross for injustice committed against him when he did nothing wrong. These are all examples of the kinds of 
injustices we see against the poor all the time today. And Jesus, when God decided to put it on flesh, he intentionally chose to look like poverty. He intentionally chose to find himself in choices or in situations that would show us the injustices of the world. And so when we see Jesus nearly aborted, when we see Jesus trying to find somewhere to run because of political refuge, and we say those things aren't important today, I think we're very much back in the situation where Jesus says, if you don't take care of the poor, you don't take care of me. If you don't take care of the sick and the hungry and those in prison and those who are thirsty, then you don't take care of me. And then Jesus raises up his church, and they're the church of Jubilee. They're the ones who are to continue taking care of the poor. In fact, one thing that Jesus seems very certain about is if Christians don't take care of the poor, they're in the same boat as outsiders. That taking care of the poor is so important to Jesus that he might look at us and say, I don't know who you are if you don't take care of them. That he might see us as wicked if we don't take care of them. Because when we don't take care of them, we don't take care of Jesus. Amen. That is what the church is to continue on. Taking care of the poor among them. And it's no surprise that when you see a lot of hospitals, they've got saint in the name. Things like that. That's because some churches in some places raise themselves up to try to take care of the poor among them that many charitable efforts throughout the years have been started by Christians who continue to understand the importance of Jesus' call to take care of the poor. Now, my master's that I'm getting right now is in social justice and theology. So like, to me, social justice things always sound glamorous, but I've seen the difficult side of this too. Uh, there are many times when I've tried to take care of the poor where things have not gone well. Uh, I've had people who felt very entitled yell at me in front of all of you and then storm out the door and then I was like, okay, let's uh, pray. Uh, I've had times where, where uh, somebody's called me for money. I was like, yeah, yeah, we can probably give a certain amount to it, um, but can you raise the rest of the money if this is all we're giving? Because we don't want to donate that and then find out that you couldn't even stay anyways. Oh, you don't even think that I can get the money, huh? It's like, I don't know who you are. I've never met you before. <laughs> and then hang up on me. It's like, okay, I'm just trying to help. I've had uh, given people rise to their homes, but they don't know where they live because they're too high. I've given people rise to their homes, and then four hours later, I've stopped at 100 different places, and it seems like they've tried to steal my car. Uh, <laughs> I've had, uh, last night, I went to try to counsel somebody who was dealing with a lot of mental health issues, and it ended with them wanting to kick my butt, to say it nicely, taking my phone and chucking it across the street. And you can hear it just hit the concrete and go <laughs> Miraculously, my phone is perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, and then we spent several more hours trying to figure out what to do about this crazy situation. It's not always easy. It's not always glamorous. 
Poverty is, yes, very much a fault of the system. But poverty also becomes, when you're stuck there for a while, it becomes life. And people don't know how to break out of that. Just like you don't know how to break out of your own life. That takes retraining, reconditioning, learning new habits, new tricks. And so if we're truly going to reach people in poverty, then yeah, our prayer is that we may join in community with the marginalized and disenfranchised. Then one of our board members, Brian, said, I think you need to be even more explicit. And he added this, that we may join in community with the marginalized and disenfranchised to provide social, emotional, physical, and spiritual support. It's holistic healing. You don't get people out of poverty all the time just by giving them money. You have to really get involved in their lives. You have to show them new ways forward. And that's a risk. Marie and Brian took someone into their house who was dealing with homeless, and a few weeks later he came to show me, here's my first keys to my apartment. What they did made a huge difference. Casey brought someone into his house who's homeless, and Casey's not here right now because that guy last night is still on his porch harassing him. But he tried, he only did it because he was trying to step out to see if he could serve the poor among him. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it backfires. But Jesus says, if you don't take care of them, you don't take care of me. So may we always err on the side of grace. May we always err on the side of love. May we seek justice. Even last night, the amount of things that I saw that were unjust within just a few hours, <laughs> it's crazy. I, I called the police and they came. I was like, hey, this guy's ruined this house uh, and he, he needs to leave. Like, it's just a verbal agreement to be here. Like, oh, unless he's suicidal or homicidal, we can't do anything. Okay, but like, he just threatened to punch me and he bumped up against Casey rather violently. Yeah, well, since COVID, we can't just take people to jail for things like that. Okay, so if a spouse is in domestic abuse, you're telling me that the spouse just needs to stay in a domestic abuse situation overnight? After the police have been called, you think the guy's gonna calm down after you leave or get worse? Like right there, recognizing injustice against people in poverty. There's a woman that I've tried to help for a long time who's a single mother. And man, she cannot move forward. The things that are against her are too much. There's nothing that can help. And I've tried to get in there to help as many times as I can, but it continually backfires. And that's all right there. Like, that's much of a systematic thing. Yeah, it's also life decisions, but there's a lot of systematic stuff that keeps her stuck there. So look. Look in your life. When you see something that America is pushing as justice or or Michigan is pushing us justice. Ask the Holy Spirit, is this something that we should lean into? Because justice is good. God is a God of justice. Justice is defined as God. And if you define it another way, it's not justice. Take care of those among you. This prayer is not that you bring a bunch of poor people to church and expect the few people in charge of the board and whatnot to figure it out. This prayer is for each and every one of us in this room to find the poor among us and take care of them together. And one of the first things we'll do to do that today is in a minute here, we're going to adjourn and we've got a food bank with a bunch of supplies 
if you know anyone who needs food, please tell them and send them over here. Uh, and if you need food, please come and get it. And if, if you're in that state where you're like, I only mildly need food and I don't want to be a bother, please take the food. We, we have more than we need every time and we want you to take it. Um, so God, we give our hearts to you. We need you to open them up. We are all made in your image and therefore every single person in this world is worthy of respect. And every single person in this world has the capacity to show the world who you are. So may you warm that image in each one of us. May you give us strategies to serve the poor. The people that we know, would we have like extra ideas as to, like unique ideas as to how to serve them personally? Show us where the weak spots are so that we can help them. And may we never be so caught up in our wealth that we realize that there's no poverty inside of us, even if it's just a poverty of the soul. Because in the end, we all need you. And all the things that we have are yours, delegated to us to figure out how to use them well for you. So teach us, grow us, help us figure that out. We love you, and we ask for your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.